Hello, and welcome to this episode of King's College London's Geography Pinter Science 2023, where we bring the scientists to the pub to talk about their research, and then through the power of technology to you, our lovely listener. I'm your host, Torin Whitehead, and I am a doctoral researcher exploring different possible future visions for the Scottish landscape, of which one could include large carnivores such as lynx. This episode is the final one about our Pinter Science panel, which we did back in May called People and Nature, where myself and four other budding scientists explored the increasingly complex and confusing relationship we have with the natural world. But don't worry, there are many more episodes to come about the challenges of conservation fieldwork in Cambodia and insights into glacial modelling and COP26. In this episode, we will listen to snippets from the panel discussion, a highlight reel if you like. Merwin and I are going to unpick and delve deeper into each quote. And so, without any further ado, let's grab our metaphorical pints and virtually transport ourselves to the pub to listen to Laura now. I guess the things that we can talk about that is talked about in the news and a lot of us will already be aware of is even the air we breathe is so dependent on nature. The food, the medicine, the spiritual and cultural values, the materials, I mean the tables that we're using, the drinks that we're drinking, the food that we're eating, it's all nature. And we're seeing it now. If we break these links, we don't know what the repercussions are. So what is nature? It can be multiple things, as Lara has just said. And for this final episode of Pints of Science, I'm joined once again by Meryl. Hi, Meryl. Hi, yeah. How you doing? Yeah, good, thank you. So what was your, your take on that first clip from Lara? Well, very, very relevant to my uh, weekend just gone. I've been, I was busy at Lords yesterday watching England heroically lose um, potentially the Ashes series. But it made me think about nature a lot. And I suppose even in those environments, you don't look at nature as nature. I'm there, stood in the, well, sat in the stand, sometimes stood, um, looking over this green field that's perfectly maintained to in order to execute the perfect game of cricket. Um, there's the ball is made out of string and cork and leather. The bats are willow. There's so much nature that we're taking advantage of in order to perform this absolute spectacle, I would argue, on top of it. Um, but you don't look at it as nature. You look at it as a cricket ground, a cricket field. Mm, but it's not possible without nature, you're saying? Yeah, it just gets detached. But it's the manipulation of nature to kind of, for the means, I don't know. No, it's, it's really interesting to think about in that sense. And I, I did find it quite funny just before uh, preparing for the pod, looking up what a cricket ball actually was. I didn't realise it was cork bound by leather and string. <laughs> yeah, crazy. And they're just working so hard to undo all of the work, the craftsmanship that's gone into it. But I suppose, um, how do we... So maybe in that instance, we're taking nature for granted. But how mm. how can we, I suppose have a greater appreciation for nature in cricket as just one example obviously not not to single it out mm. i wonder if you could just label things as nature more um no that's called greenwashing and we don't support that but <laughs> <laughs> i think making nature more explicit more visible because so often you look past it i suppose maybe i'm, I'm just being off the top of my head but cricket grounds are you know big green spaces and for large parts of the year, you're not using a lot of the ground. So maybe trying to leave some of it or partnering with a conservation 
organisation to kind of um, perhaps as a part of the cricket lessons that children go to, they do some kind of other stuff. So they have that mm. understanding of how, you know, connected the sport is to the natural world. Um, mm. And I suppose that kind of brings us into our next clips of like, how do we bring about this mindset change? So we're just going to listen to a few clips now from Zosha and Anna. Posted a TikTok about how much I love cemeteries and a couple of people, some hate comments on there saying that it was really inappropriate and it's somebody's buried there. It's not a Halloween decoration. It's so disrespectful, which is, is quite interesting, I think. But you've also got a lot of these other smaller Victorian cemeteries that uh, create this sort of green belt. And right next to this green belt, you've got areas like Lewisham that are really deprived from green space. So if you're telling people that you can't go into these green spaces, but also not providing those people with access to alternative nature spaces, you're basically saying that dead people have more rights than alive people from deprived areas. I think it starts with a mindset change and I'm a great advocate in thinking that people are part of nature. So just creating that shift that stop seeing them as separate things so creating that shift to stop people seeing them as separate things so i suppose we've talked about a little bit with cricket but the thing i wanted to pick on was that amazing quote from anna of dead people having more rights than living people and obviously you've got to be very sensitive to the fact that this is a cemetery and people are buried here but perhaps it does have some ecological value and is part of that mindset change seeing that as something beautiful uh, that we can contribute to perhaps yeah i think it may be about rephrasing the questions or the the narratives and um discourse that we're using i don't know i often think that people are part of nature i would agree with that i think but actually when you drill down into it what part of people are part of nature and where do those limits exist and maybe if we look at it through that lens we can see that okay it's not like a corporal embodied process where our physicality is nature but instead the the sort of leisure activities and um interactions that we have with nature are then part of nature um and we're facilitating something there like where are we placing people even when they are in nature because the fact that we have to say the statement suggests that there has to be some sort of relationship they aren't one and the same? I don't know. I think that's sort of... Yeah, I, I can definitely see what you're getting at. And kind of building on that, the thing that really came out for me from those clips was, you know, a lot of these cemeteries are in, you know, highly populated urban areas where perhaps there are not many green spaces. And so yeah. for some people, their local cemetery is their local green space. And as we know, there's lots of studies that show that you know, having access to green space is really important for our mental and physical health. Mm. Yeah, and how can we allow those two things to exist together? Can there be sort of a respectful way that we engage in cemeteries? And maybe that's already happening. In fact, all the paths and routes that exist through cemeteries are there for access to the graves, but also so people can move through the space. And so long as people are respectful to that, maybe that allows for them to run concurrently, but kind of off pathing <laughs> um, might not actually have, might be where the line is crossed. So um, I think that kind of goes back to that part of nature idea. It's the, the two things moving together um, by the very virtue of the fact that they interact all the time. Mm. And perhaps it's coming together as a community of diverse mm. ideas and people to decide how we want to share this space and coming to some kind of consensus and compromise 
so that you're respectful of it being a cemetery but also it does have that ecological value that's important for nature itself intrinsically but also for us as people to be able to interact with and experience and i think that takes us really nicely into our next clip uh, so let's have a listen now i'm not homogenizing um all franks and all marks to have the same opinions but if you're only representing a certain group of people, you're only going to get a certain variety of opinions. And as we've all been saying, we all have our own definition of what nature is. So you need a, a, a more diverse group of people to have the most collaborative and inclusive results of protecting nature in all of its different iterations. So for those listeners who haven't heard Anna's episode yet, which was episode four, uh, the, the stat she's talking about is that 25 out of 27 of the International Commission for Zoological Nomenclature, aka the naming gang of what different species are called in their Latin, uh, well, 25 out of 27 of them are male, and so a person in this role is twice as likely to be called Frank or Mark than be a woman. And we're not homogenizing all Franks and Marks, but what was your, what, what was your take on this quite harrowing <laughs> stat, Meryl? Well, you can bet I'm a big fan of the ICZN. (laughs) Um, It's just too wordy, isn't it, to to remember the name of it? (laughs) Yeah, I have to admit I've made Torin say that bit because I can't pronounce the final word. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think Anna's getting to an incredibly poignant poignant point uh, where you only will ever know the knowledge of the people you ask or the people you consider and their viewpoints and their worldviews. Um, and if you want to get a more rounded view of it, you have to ask more people. And the chances are people from different spaces, different groups, different communities will have differing opinions because there's that's a kind of historical... I don't like that. People from different communities, cultures, spaces, will have different experiences and that will inform their beliefs and imaginaries of space. So a lot of Anna's work I know goes into kind of decolonization of knowledge production and and this is a huge part of it, right? You have to start pushing beyond the boundaries that we, we've had set in place. Mm. And so when you say decolonizing knowledge, for those of our listeners who, you know, there's a lot to unpack within that, but just briefly just kind of summarize what you mean. So if we're striving to decolonize knowledge, we're trying to think about the other uh, knowledge systems that may exist that have been kind of denied presence in um, scholarship and academia through uh, colonial means and the hegemony or the the kind of power hierarchy of Western knowledge systems across the world. So in order to decolonize knowledge and also knowledge production, we need to legitimize and construct methods and approaches to allow for other knowledge systems to um, kind of be explored and considered. Um, It's kind of trying to take away that hierarchy and think from perspectives or uh, both yourself, but also listen to perspectives of others um, from those different knowledge and i'll and i'll jump in and help you out now because i know that's a that's a big topic to tackle (laughs) but um so yeah i suppose just thinking about my own work uh, part of what i want to do is listen to uh people whose voices perhaps have been marginalized in the past in the conservation movement in scotland um and so there's a really interesting report from nature scott about how uh, gaelic uh 
voices have been marginalised, but also perhaps that more practical knowledge from farmers and gamekeepers and gillies who are kind of living on the land so that hasn't been included in how we think about nature, but how we go about uh, conserving and, if I'm allowed to say it, rewilding. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that's that's really important. It's about pushing, pushing who has the microphone. Um, maybe also this could be controversial on podcasts, but rejecting objectivity. That idea of objectivity comes from this kind of colonized uh, knowledge production where we think of um, ourselves being able to hold that when studying like sort of social processes or humanity or nature or whatever. Like it actually objectivity is not something that any of us can possess truly mm. in my argument, which is probably not going to go everyone's favorite argument, but actually accepting subjectivity and acknowledging it is the key. So when you're thinking about your your methods and your approach, as well as your kind of like analysis and stuff, it's thinking, who am I in relation to this data and what might be informing it? Just as you might be thinking about any other variable which you can control or can't control, um, your own subjectivity is there too. So an over-reliance on objectivity is, is, a, is a kind of theoretical example of how um, we can strive to decolonize knowledge and knowledge production. Um, everything's different to everyone. That's all I'm going to say. And <laughs> which makes it very useful as a researcher to to na to navigate that minefield. But I think that's a good place to stop and pause, and we'll listen to the next clips now about rewilding. I understand why people use the term rewilding because it's sexy and it gets headlines and it gets people engaged. But ultimately, reintroduction of species has been happening for a very long long time, just under different language. So we're looking at the UK and rewilding. I think we've mentioned this already, like, what are we rewilding to? What is the standard? Like, how far do we go back? So yeah, I think we've got to keep that all in mind um, when we're thinking about these things and how we do our interventions as well. Is like, is it, what is the objective and how do we reach it? There's so many different ways in which conservation is approached and then these are just a couple of them. So I guess I can start off this part of the conversation about rewilding as my work relates more closely to it. Like I think Anna was saying, rewilding is this uh, very sexy term that has caught the attention of a lot of the members of the general public. And it's often seen as a narrative of hope in response to the climate and biodiversity crisis. But does it inadvertently exclude some groups, perhaps? And like Lara says, what are we rewilding to? What is the objective? So we've had some interesting chats before about rewilding, Meryl. How, how do you feel about the term? <laughs> God, I didn't know cans of worms was on the menu, Torrin. We just seem to be opening them. Right. <laughs> Left, right and centre. Um, yeah, I mean, actually quite related to the um, decolonising conversation that we just had. I think for me, rewarding is a really interesting topic of thinking through like geopolitical imaginaries. That's kind of the field I sit in. I'm a political geographer and I'm thinking a lot about these like imagined geographies and so when you speak to me about your wolves work and your interest in wolves in Scotland, I find that human carnival relationship uh, quite interesting because it, it feels like a real abnormality in, in Scotland or something that it needs to be worked on the mindset change as such. But then again, human carnival relationships on the continent of Africa are kind of accepted and, and they're normalised. So why is this binary kind of existing and how are these spatial differences kind of being allowed? In the term, you have the word wild. I think that's incredibly... 
I think that is part of where the contentiousness comes in Scotland is that it's this idea of the wild. We often think of these, uh, like you say, these nature documentaries in different countries in Africa where, you know, there's a focus on the nature. But, you know, it, it's these vast uh, expanses of nature which don't include people. And I think it's that idea of putting nature above people, which kind of gets the... Uh, uh, which which irks people slightly. And I suppose the point is, is people are there. <laughs> um, the documentary framing, and that's quite an interesting way to think of that colonial lens again, it's like, this is the perspective we're taking, and so we omit any other perspective from it. We only want to see nature, we only want to see the savannah, we want to see these areas, and we want to see the animals in it. So therefore, this is the world view. But actually, you could watch a documentary on the... Maasai Mara about the Maasai people and you'd have a completely different view of the exact same space mm. so these layered realities need to be kind of like these layered identities need to be critically thought thought through um, and then you can ask questions like what space is allowed to be wild and why is it allowed to be wild why does the continent of Africa create imaginaries that are more wild than Scotland and how do they relate to geopolitical imaginaries of those spaces and subsequently how we act in them? So, yeah, well, I think, I think... rewarding is a, uh, a, a big, big old can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> They're on the menu for sure. And I think you, you've given me plenty to go away and think about for, for my own research. But let's listen to Kapil now, um, as I think he brings in a, an interesting perspective which contributes to, to this conversation. Who am I to say what nature should be? Right. I think all of you have your own views, and I respect those views. Uh, I might respect some views more than others, you know. <laughs> uh, but you know, uh, I think this is, you know, one of those times when you think you said something which was not funny, but happens to be funny. <laughs> that either we can, you know, like stay in our comfort zone, make a fortress around it, and say this is nature. But I think. What's the point of that, you know, like, I mean, we have a limited lifespan, we can like either learn more things, you know, expand our ideas, you know, or, and that means like, you know, always stepping out of our comfort zone and maybe, you know, asking those people who differ from us, you know, why do you differ? God, he's good. Yeah, he, <laughs> before we even get into the, what he actually said, it, he, he gets so poetic, doesn't he? <laughs> so, so philosophical. I know, it's a, he's an, in, an incredible uh, orator. <laughs> so, um, I, I mean, really the first thing you said, who am I to say what nature should be? Uh, and like you say, in terms of my positionality as a researcher going to Scotland, it's not my place to go and say, this is what nature should be. Uh, it's really up to us to, to listen to the people who live there. Yeah, and actually, why, to be controversial, why do they have a right to dictate what nature is in that space? And is it productive to allow every space of nature to have its own local determinant of what it is? Well, probably there is very much an argument for mm. what is used, what is used, what is experienced, what is treasured, etc. Um, but then again, you still have to contest with whose voice. No one person can represent everybody else's entirely so um constantly having to consider these kind of these breaths but allowing yourself to also have a voice in it um 
is a way to like balance it maybe i think even in the fact that kapil laughed at the fact that he didn't expect the laugh to his comment about he might respect some views more than others yeah it was interesting because i think he's just like well duh <laughs> don't we all but maybe that and then people laugh because it's like haha we shouldn't do that haha but no we all do it and maybe we should just accept that we all do it yeah, no, I think that's really interesting to think about. But I think the key being that, okay, I might have my view, but I'm open-minded to listen to yours and how can yeah. we find, come to some consensus and compromise, which is representative of this diverse group of stakeholders. But crucially that I do think local people have a voice, a meaningful voice in kind of how this uh, rewilding narrative plays out, for example, in Scotland, but in, like you say, many, many other conservation projects around yeah. the world. Yeah, and it's saying, you know, this is expertise. Sorry, my hanger fell on the floor. <laughs> and, you know, it's saying these people have expertise. It's not just that they have experience. We can value the information in the same way as we value fact and scientific research. And it's putting, making sure the pedestal is removed. Um, or you could just do what I do and study inanimate objects and then no one can say anything. Because, like, <laughs> nature is somewhat alive, whereas walls, <laughs> they, they are nothing good. I, where was it? Yeah, I was, I was walking down a, a river yesterday and I was thinking, is the bank of that river the, the wall between people and nature? <laughs> but then I was thinking, well, actually, no, then I suppose if people are getting into the water, they're, they're breaking down these walls that we've put up. <laughs> Yeah, or if, uh, if you've ever walked down the towpath, the Can Regents Canal towpath in Carabdon, there are a few dodgy little uh, blocks, I guess you call them, and the water splashes you if you hit them in the wrong corner. <laughs> so that's the water fighting back. There we go. Boat. Um, and what do we think of boats? <laughs> <laughs> well, thankfully we've got one more poetic, deeply philosophical quote from Kapil um before we uh before we begin wrapping up this episode so let, let's have a listen to him and to Zosha now as, as an ecologist and I, I don't know if there's any other ecologists in the room in the way that we were taught at university it's basically like humans are the problem and we need to shut them out and look after the animals and humans are going to ruin everything but i think that we need to sort of look for solutions which include people because that's the only way and that is really the future the idea also comes to us is that we want to save everything you know, uh, if somebody lops a tree branch, you're like, don't cut the tree branch. If somebody uh, plucks a flower, you're like, don't pluck the flower. You know, somebody wants to kill something, don't kill that something. We want to literally save everything, you know. And it's not like everything could be saved. Again, fire comes in there, you know. Do you want to save the tree or do you want to save the grass? If the tree grows, the grass cannot grow under it. So you can't really care for everything. So I think even the notion of, you know, love for everything doesn't mean anything you know love is injustice you care for something more than others so i think that could be another way to understand our ethics wow <laughs> i mean that love is injustice <laughs> yeah you can go first off you pop <laughs> yes i remember on the night passing that one off to lara and she was just kind of giving this look of yeah thanks for that <laughs> how, how do you follow that but well, perhaps before we get into that, then, um, I think Zosha raised a really interesting point. So I, I did my undergraduate studies in chemistry, so perhaps I can't relate to this as much. But did you find that people were framed as being the problem in, in, your, in how you were taught at university? 
Yeah, so I did social anthropology and politics at uni. So I would definitely say people were the problem, but they were also the solution and everything in between because it was very human-centered work. Um, And yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of interesting to be so deterministic about it from the way that uh, maybe it was taught to just say this is this is the um, this is the approach to take. Uh, we need to shut them out. That's done. Mm. Well, I think it ties into something Kapil said uh, in his is in his own kind of talk that he did before the panel discussion, which you can hear listeners on episode three if you haven't already. Yeah, how we used to think about conservation was that we need to exclude people from these places to protect nature. But forests, like Kapil said in his talk, are very much social landscapes. And so how do we bring about that shift in our mindset and relationship with nature so that we realise that a part of nature is taking from it, but, you know, sustainably? It's quite interesting to, uh, to acknowledge the fact that I don't, like, to acknowledge sort of the background of my academic life or whatever you want to call it, and think about how, in geopolitical terms, when you think of it at scale, the scale of, I don't know, foreign like, foreign relations, let me, let's say, um, there's always this argument that the world is now a zero-sum game. There's no more space to be discovered. It's all been discovered. It's all been found. It's all been occupied, which is, has got very imperialist tones to it. But the point being that there's a claim there for in order for classical geopolitics to operate that, that there is no space yet untouched or unowned shall we say or territorialized so then how can we negotiate those two things we allow one to exist there but at the same time seem to be able to exclude nature from people so surely they then refute each other and i think it's interesting just to consider how each imaginary of the world serves for some sort of political means or strategic Mm. means and there's an advantage and what is that advantage to having these segregative opinions and what maybe what are the advantages of, of the united ones? So I think it's it kind of it's just come to me how it's this reveal of, you know, the facilitation of certain schools of thoughts through the uh, kind of manipulation of imaginary of space. Wow. Hey, I'm telling into Kapil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that did get quite philosophical. But I think the underlying point being, you have to consider the values and objectives of different groups for their future visions of the landscape, right? Mm. Um, and like you say, it, it it can't be disentangled with their political views, their you know personal views, their livelihood, and all these different things. Uh, and I think that's that's really important to remember. So I suppose wrapping up the people and nature with this being the final episode, what were your your takeaways overall from the night? I mean, gosh, I learned a lot. Um, I think I have always dabbled in an interest for ecology, never studied it, don't know it at any sort of real academic depth. My mum's a plant scientist, so that's a little uh, nod to her, I guess. But <laughs> I think she studies algae. It's very specific. Um, but we love clammy. Um, anyway, off track. <laughs> no, I think it was just a really interesting way to allow people to debate across these kind of potentially more, what we'd see as physical geographers to human geographers, which is often a divide from um, people who look at like the very small scales to the very much larger scale, 
people who think through plants, people who think through animals. I think that was just so engaging and something that maybe we don't do enough. We just speak on these kind of uh, one directional um, talks and stuff and we engage, but this really allowed for this like in-depth discussion. And I think you should be really proud of yourself for putting that together and orchestrating on the night. You did an incredible job and as you have done with the podcast. Um, So yeah, I'm just here to engage with it more. I think we can safely say there's no conclusions, um, but hopefully just sort of a mind mm. explorator or little tour of things and ways you can think about stuff. Well, I definitely um, won't be cutting out the bit uh, where you, you praise me. Thank you very much. But I think it just shows that, um, I suppose I'll be honest, very little work went into bringing about that conversation. But what I mean by that is if you bring people together to talk, it, it just happens, it sparks. And maybe that's what we need to do. We need to start talking more to each other, not to get too philosophical like Kapil for us for a moment. Maybe we should leave it on a slightly softer note of what is your favourite nature, which doesn't make sense as a sentence, but maybe kind of makes sense in the contents. What is oh. my favourite nature? Well, I think my favourite nature... At the moment, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go back it back to it again. I just re- I I really enjoy my bird watching at the moment. <laughs> Do you ever watch urban birds? Yeah, all the time. Um, I've got this blackbird, which uh, darts around in front of my window, and I've got my binoculars literally in my drawer here. So, <laughs> whenever it pops up, I grab my binoculars and just just ha- have a have a little look to see what's going on. Mm, and what about you? Incredible. What what's your favorite nature? I think. I think it's at home at my parents' house in sort of South Cambridgeshire where they have this incredible kind of food allotment space and it's just the two of them living there. My mum grows more courgettes than I think she would ever mean to. But it is something about just seeing that interaction of caring for the plants or caring for the food that you're creating, but also using the nature in order to provide food but there's a real kind of, I don't know, caring relationship that goes on between my mum and the vegetables. <laughs> and I think that's a fantastic point to wrap up uh, this podcast. Uh, thank you again, Meryl, for joining me. Uh, and in the next episode, we'll be exploring your night, if you want to give a brief little introduction to that. Yeah, so I, I've now gone on four field trips kind of across all of my academic work and it can be really scary and it can be really challenging but it can be incredibly fruitful um so i'm going to sit down with horin and um a kind of fellow phd student called sam i'm going to grill them on their thoughts on field work uh whilst also listening to C- professor kathy McElwain's talk on kind of her the evolution of field work in her research career which is fascinating so yeah join us next time we can talk about it Thank you for joining me for this episode of Pint of Science. Listener, if you enjoyed this episode, please join us for our next one, where we dive headfirst into the sometimes weird, wonderful and worrying elements of fieldwork. See you then.